about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So 2 Kings 5. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father... If the prophet had told you to do something, some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon, 
to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes? or olive groves and vineyards, or flocks and herds, or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Well well done. Here comes the bonus round. Hi, everyone. Uh, The second reading is Luke 4, verses 23 to 30. It's not going to be in the uh, leaflet handed out, but it will be in the Pew Bibles on page 834. So that's Luke 4, 23 to 30. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is James, and I'm a student minister here. And uh, for those who've been tracking, I finished first year of Moore Theological College last week. So uh, thank you. You're very kind. Uh, It's been a big year of change. Uh, Some of you will remember that my 
son Henry was born week one of class, which was uh, a whirlwind. You know, I got back in week four and we were doing nouns in Hebrew and I didn't even know the alphabet. So um, it's been a big year, lots of change. It's one, a joke I cracked this morning is I've lost some weight, which you know, you may not be able to believe. You can fall on me now and get a paper cut. So uh, that's, that's me. Why don't we pray as we come to God's word? Please join with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can be here this evening, and we pray that by your Spirit you'd bring us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been in this part of the Bible in 2 Kings, focusing on the prophet Elisha. God's Spirit is with him, as we've seen, truly. Elisha's presence represents God's continuing presence with his people. God has not abandoned Israel, and he is not silent. In fact, Elisha's power and prophetic office are time and time again linked with the Word of God. Elisha speaks and acts on the basis of the Word of God and blesses Israel. Well, tonight I want to ask this question. How should we respond to God's word? What's appropriate? What's inappropriate? You know, every day we see examples of appropriate and inappropriate behavior. Ever since my younger sister was 17, she has said to anyone who says that Friends is a better 90s sitcom than Seinfeld, she's called them uncultured swine, which, for those who are tracking, is a reference to Toy Story 1. So she's cultured. And I would say... This is a completely appropriate response to a lesser comedic TV show. Fight me. It's not that important, though, is it? What is the better 90s sitcom? But the question, how should we respond to God's word, is not an arbitrary question. It's, It's deeply important, in fact. In fact, it really matters how you respond. If God has spoken the one true living God, really has given us his word, then you and I have a responsibility to respond rightly and accordingly. But also, it's an opportunity to find life. For as we'll see today, God's word is powerful, restorative, gracious. And if you would just grasp hold of it for yourself, well, perhaps there may be some people this evening who are feeling tired, in need of some restoration and rejuvenation, a kind word after a harsh week, or you're just feeling a bit powerless, if you would just grasp hold of God's word for yourself, regardless of what your week has looked like, tonight, I think that 2 Kings chapter 5 will restore you, will refresh you, will inspire you. So would you come with me now, as we come to this chapter in 2 Kings chapter 5. Having followed a series of Elisha's interactions over the last chapter, the narrative slows right down and we focus on a few characters. In fact, today I'm going to focus on three particular characters as we go through this narrative in three stages. So would you come with me to verses 1 to 8, and here we're going to see a young girl who reveals God's word of power. The narrative opens with the description of this man, Naaman. And in verse 1, we see that Naaman is not an Israelite. This is pretty important. You see, he's from Aram, which is to the north of 
Israel, also called Syria. So he's not one of God's covenant chosen people. In fact, Aram and the Aramites, they, they were sometimes allies of the people of Israel, but more often than not, they were foes who would oppose the people of Israel. And just look how Naaman is described in verse 1. We see that he's got five particular descriptions. Did you catch them there? Verse 1, he's a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He is a great man in the sight of his master. He is highly regarded because God, the God of Israel, has granted him military victories over Israel. He is a valiant soldier, but, fifthly, he had leprosy. You see, this fifth description in this list of five is meant to jolt us as we think, wait a second, something doesn't seem right. You see, Naaman has a skin condition that would have made him a social outcast, apart from the pain, perhaps, and the embarrassment. And so even though he is great, even though he's considered great, Naaman has a condition that threatens to, to, to overtake all of that. I mean, despite the grandeur of the first four descriptions, this fifth one is the one that our attention is drawn to. I mean, that's how it is for many of us, isn't it? in the sufferings and darkness of life, sometimes the darkness of suffering can threaten to extinguish all the other light we have in life, such that we forget that we really do have good things, because the suffering we are experiencing just feels so dark. Well, what pushes the story forward is a person who is almost the exact opposite of Naaman. He's a great man, but in verse 2, we see that some raiders have captured an Israelite a young girl. And she has been brought back to Aram to serve Naaman's wife. But notice in verse 3, this young girl knows of Elisha, a prophet in Samaria, northern Israel. And so she tells Naaman's wife about his power. She knows this prophet has done miracles. She knows this prophet has done some feats. She knows this prophet in Israel is a man of God. Now, see, in verse 4, the, the fact that the narrative doesn't recount Naaman's wife telling Naaman this message, but goes straight to, to Naaman going to the king of Aram, it, it, it brings the narrative into a bit of a, a faster mode, right? Naaman really, really wants to grasp hold of this message. He sees a glimmer of hope, and he wants to catch it as soon as he can. And so he goes to his master. And in verse 5, the king of Aram approves of this journey. Sure. Go, find a cure if you can. And in fact, I'm going to send you a letter for the king of Israel. I mean, after all, if there's some great power in this land, surely the most powerful man in the land would have access to this power. And so Naaman goes with an entourage, with, with, with a gift, a huge gift, in fact. If you take a look at the gift that's described here, Earlier this week, I, I did some research, and in modern Australian dollars, what he brings with him is the equivalent of 1.9 billion Australian dollars. Would it surprise you to believe that even thousands of years ago, war was a lucrative business? Naaman was valued to the military of Aram. And so he goes, bringing this gift, possibly hoping to bribe the king, bribe the prophet to gain his skin back. 
In verse 7, the king of Israel reads this letter from the king of Aram, and he despairs. He tears his robe, saying in verse 7, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? I mean, this king's theology is stronger than his character. He knows that it isn't him who holds the power of life and death. He knows that it's only God alone. And he despairs. All this, political machinations, money, the grief of a king, all this from the word of a lowly, enslaved little girl. You know, we might be tempted at this point to push on and focus on other characters, but I think that the narrative here gives a special place of prominence to this girl. Because it's important to note the risk that her word to Naaman's wife posed for her. I mean, she is a, a, a captive girl holding out a word of hope for her captor, an enemy. We don't know. We don't know what these raiders from Aram have done to to her, what abuses she's endured, what injuries she's sustained. We don't know if her family has been killed. We don't even know her name. And yet she speaks with a suggestion to go into enemy territory. She speaks a word of of power, of hope. Can you imagine if if Naaman comes back empty-handed? Who knows what would have happened to her? An expendable little girl. You see, I think this young girl was a model of, of courage and grace. Courage because she speaks power to power at great risk to herself. And grace because she didn't need to open her mouth about this. She could have just let her master suffer away. She didn't need to speak and yet she holds this offer out because she knows there is a prophet in Israel. As far as I can tell, we never hear about this young girl again in the Bible, but the impact of her speech has, well, it has an impact for generations to come, as we'll see. And you know, Jesus in his day was described as a prophet, a great prophet, who was powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. And and the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 4, he wrote to them, asking them, pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The Apostle Paul wanted prayer for open doors so that mouths could be opened and words could be proclaimed about the great prophet Jesus. He, he, he encouraged the Colossian Christians to, to always let their conversation be seasoned with salt. In other words, he was always looking for an opportunity to speak words of power. You know, we aren't captives taken in by some enemy nation, and so we have less of a reason to, to, to be afraid of speaking than this young girl did. 
We who know the Lord Jesus. We who have this word of power. Well, what's keeping us from speaking? To a world that desperately needs restoration and can only find it in the one who truly has power of life and death. Yes, we may face opposition and ears that may not be willing to listen, but the power isn't in us. It's in the one who can change hearts, raise the dead, and who gives us his word to do so. As we see in 2 Kings chapter 5, this may even involve revealing it to others who have wronged us or harmed us or, or have more power over us, and yet as subjects of the one who holds ultimate power, we can have courage. And as a church, let me ask, do we seriously long to be shaped by the good news of Jesus and to hold it out with confidence, gentleness, and joy? Do we want that? Or do we feel fear at the prospect of needing to speak about Jesus ourselves? Or, let me put it another way, are, are there people who live in these surrounding areas, in this community, whom you would dread to see at church because you don't want to ever have to call them a brother or sister because of how they've wronged you? Are there people who you would withhold the word of God from? Brothers and sisters, be like the young girl. Have courage, the courage to speak about God's word of power with, and, and be gracious, for the one who was revealed to us was full of grace and truth. And he calls us, commissions us, to be full of grace and truth as well. That's the first thing it means, to appropriately respond to God's word. Well, back in 2 Kings chapter 5, in verse 8, Elisha hears about the king of Israel's meltdown, and he tells him to send Naaman to him so that he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And that brings us to verses 9 to 19. So now we're going to focus on Naaman, who receives God's word of restoration. In verse 9, Naaman and his entourage of, of servants and horses and chariots and gifts, they make their way over to Elisha's home. Having come this far, he ain't stopping now, right? He goes to Elisha's home, and in verse 10, Elisha sends a messenger out to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Naaman hears this word of restoration and notices Elisha's absence. Well, actually, more than that, he disapproves of Elisha's absence. Because in verses 11 and 12, we see that this great man, Naaman, expected this great prophet to do something great. I mean, if you're a great prophet, why don't you come down here right now and wave your hands? Isn't that the thing that great people do? Wave it. Heal me. In fact, he's so upset by this that he threatens, no, he doesn't just threaten, he actually walks away. But we see another part of his, his, his rebuttal, right? Because he says, look, if, if, if the God that you follow is really God, and he wants me to wash myself in water, then surely he'd pick impressive water. Water like that which we have in Damascus up on the left side of the screen, not the the lowly water of the Jordan River in Israel like we have on the right side of the screen. If you're going to get me to use water, 
I think you should be using impressive water. Naaman's prideful arrogance threatens to botch the whole thing until his servants give him a can of logic. You see that in verse 13, don't you? Go to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? Well, evidently, the reasoning works. And so in verse 14, Naaman follows through. He, he listens. He listens to the instructions that Elisha gave him. So he goes down to the Jordan River. And probably feeling very foolish, he, he dips himself seven times. And miraculously, he's cleansed. His flesh is restored and becomes clean. You know, one of the reasons why some people in our world don't follow God isn't because they don't believe he exists. It's because they don't like what he has to say. And I think this affects the doubts of Christians, too. A few years ago, I currently live up in Carlingford, and a few years ago, a friend of mine wanted to have coffee, and so we met in Epping. We went to a cafe, and we had a chat. And and she just said, James, I'm struggling with a few things. Can I... Can we talk about it? I said, yeah, let's talk. And we talked for an hour and a half. And by the end of the conversation, she said to me, James, if this is really what God says, if this really is what it means to be a Christian, I don't think I can accept that. And I really sympathized with her. I I really did because... You know, she's a friend, I care about her. I could see her wrestling with this in her mind. And so as, as warmly and as gently as I could, I said to her, can you see that you haven't disproven that God exists? You haven't shown me an error in the Bible. You haven't shown me that the historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is fake. The reason why you're thinking about letting go of Christianity is because You actually don't like what God has to say. Now, in that particular instance, she ended the conversation saying, wow, you're right. And and, and she thanked me. Now, I want to be clear here. These conversations don't always go this way. And in fact, every situation, every context, every person is different. But for me, it was a revealing situation. Because what it showed me is that sometimes... When we don't like what God has to say, that is the basis of the doubt. You know, if the one true living God has spoken, then he doesn't need to submit himself to our reasoning, our logic, our expectations, what we think is impressive, what we think makes sense, what we think is high and lofty, and what uh, a God, a spirit, uh, something would do. Why doesn't he do this if he's so smart? Why doesn't he do that if he's so loving? And if he doesn't submit himself to what I want, then he's not real. Brothers and sisters, don't walk away from God because you don't like what he has to say. Or think that your way of doing things would make more sense. I mean, of course, we need to make sure that what we are hearing here actually is what God has said. And not what other people may be twisting him to say. And so, it might be a really 
simple point to make here, but it's a good thing to read the Bible. Personally, communally, in community groups, regularly, to, to, to immerse yourself in the Bible and to hear the word for yourself. Don't walk away from God because you don't like what the God of truth says truthfully. Instead, do what Naaman does. You see, despite starting out in a rage and walking away in a huff, Naaman humbles himself, submits himself to the word, and he's restored. You'll notice that verse 14 says his flesh is described as becoming clean like that of a young boy, which juxtaposes with back what we saw in verse 1. Remember in verse 1, he's described as a great man. But now in verse 14, he's described like a young boy boy. Because something has changed. He's come down off his high horse, literally. But in verse 15, we see that not only is Naaman's flesh transformed, his heart is as well. As he goes back to Elisha and recognizes that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, and he will not worship anyone else. You see, Naaman is now a believer in the God of Israel. He's converted He knows that it's God who healed him. Elisha just sent the word over. Elisha wasn't even there. Now, that doesn't stop him from wanting to to thank Elisha. So in verse 16, he's trying to to give him a gift, but, but Naaman refuses it. See, apart from Naaman's leprosy, I think this is one of the reasons why why Elisha didn't go out in the first place. It's because he wanted all the glory for this healing, this restoration to be God's alone. He is the one who restores Elisha, uh, excuse me, Naaman, not Elisha. You know, to all of us here in the room today, Christian or not, God's word of restoration is held out for you to a world that desperately needs it. The God who is there and is not silent has given us a final, decisive word of restoration in his son, Jesus Christ, who offers you reconciliation with with God and offers to wipe away your guilt and your shame forever. I don't know what your story may be walking in here today, but know this, God says none of it, none of it is unable to be washed away in my son Jesus Christ. And he offers us a final hope of 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 physical restoration as well. Whatever physical ailments you may be going through when his son returns one day and ushers in the new creation. Life forever. But all of this only comes if you would humbly submit to God's word. You know, this is a prime story in the Bible where we see the intimate details of a person's heart change uh, in the narrative so far, but also in verses 17 and 18, we see that Naaman, he goes further, right? He, he wants to carry some earth from Israel back to Aram so that he can use it presumably to create an altar of some sort and to, to, to offer sacrifices to the God of Israel. But more than that, he also wants God to forgive him whenever he goes with the king of Aram to this temple of a storm god, Rimmon, which, which sounds weird, and yet, Elisha, I think Elisha grants it to him in verse 19, with a blessing, go in peace. That sounds really strange on one hand, because, wait, didn't you say you weren't going to bow down to any other god? 
You see, Naaman is a man who has responsibilities and has been converted in a life situation. And in receiving God's word of restoration, God doesn't call him out of the world. God calls him to live as faithfully as he can in his world. In fact, that's how it should be for us. Becoming a Christian isn't an escape from the world. It's a summons to live life as a restored worshiper of God, a bearer of his word of power and restoration, and and in as much as possible, to seek to live faithfully to him, whatever that may mean in your context. Well, we've seen the appropriate examples of the young girl who reveals God's power, excuse me, God's word of power, and Another example, in Naaman, who receives God's word of restoration. Would you come with me now to verses 19 to 27 as we look briefly at an inappropriate example of how to respond to God's word. The example of Gehazi, who ridicules God's word of grace. You see, in verse 20, Gehazi is described as a servant of the man of God, Elisha. And we've seen him previously, uh, last week's passage in chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4, we saw that he faithfully followed Elisha's instructions. He's a faithful, obedient servant. But here in this story, something changes. You see, he takes issue with the fact that Elisha refused to accept a gift from Naaman. My master has done something wrong. He was too easy on him. I mean, he brought $1.9 billion. Surely we can get some of that. And so in verse 21, he hurries after Gehazi. And in verse 22, he lies attributing something to Elisha that Elisha never said. I mean, Naaman is more than happy to give it. He's thankful. He is, he's over the moon at his restoration. And so he grants it. So Gehazi takes it, goes home, and tries to hide it. In verse 25, he lies to Elisha, saying he hasn't been anywhere. And then, in verses 26 and 27, he's cursed. Verse 27, Elisha says, Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. Three things to say before we finish. Firstly, it's not as if Gehazi needed to touch the the waters of the Jordan River again in order to receive Naaman's leprosy. Elisha here pronounces this curse with words because it is the word that has the power, not the water. You see, the waters of the Jordan River were the symbol and instrument that God used for Naaman to receive restoration. He didn't need to use water. And yet, that's exactly the point. You see, God didn't need to use this physical, tangible instrument And yet he did, because that's who God is. He uses the ordinary elements of his good world and uses them for extraordinary purposes. Just like how with God's people, he takes ordinary people like you and me and can make us extraordinarily useful. This whole exchange with Gehazi shows us that Naaman's cleansing is a, it's a beautiful picture of how God uses the physical creation, uses things like water for amazing purposes. 
bit like baptism, isn't it? A bit like baptism. And yet the power lies in the word going alongside the water. Second, we shouldn't dishonor God's word of grace. You see, Gehazi's punishment fits the crime. Gehazi was not content to let grace be grace. If my master doesn't take something from Naaman, he's going to think that this was free. If, if my master doesn't, doesn't gain anything from Naaman, they're going to think that they can just come in here and get God's power whenever they want. Or, or insert whatever it was that was going through Gehazi's head. You see, in verse 26, Elisha says, this wasn't the time to accept clothes or take money because God's grace had worked in his divine power. If you pay for it, it's not grace anymore. If you work for it, it's not grace anymore. If you merit it, it's not grace anymore. If you give something to transact with God, it's not grace anymore. Gehazi makes a complete mockery of grace. Even if it was just 1%. I mean, not that you can quantify that, but 1%. It's no longer grace. It was not right for Gehazi to try and gain a lucrative profit from God's kindness. And it was not right for him to attribute a lie to Elisha, the one who represents the word of God in Israel. And so the punishment fits the crime to him and his descendants forever. This Israelite who ought to know God and glory in his kindness ridicules it for money. You know, there's only one time in the Gospels that Jesus directly mentions Elisha, and it's this story. We heard it read for us in that amazing second reading from Luke chapter 4, using it as an example of, of how, well, Jesus is using this as an example of how God's people, the Jews, often did not treat God's prophets rightly. Up here in verse 27, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. You see, Jesus is pointing out that this non-Jew, this foreigner, received the grace of God freely, openly, because he humbled himself, not the Israelites. You see, Gehazi is a bit of a picture of what the rest of Israel were doing, taking God's grace for granted, not humbling themselves. I mean, it's a bit of a reminder that, yes, no one is saved by being religious or being part of a Christian family or culture. All of these people in Israel had leprosy. None of them were healed. Naaman, the one who humbled himself, got God's grace. But also, it reminds us that the most religious people in the world can also be the most hardened to God's word. Ignoring it, weaponizing it, abusing it, using it to gain a profit for themselves. The status of your heart is what matters to God when it comes to his word, not the strength of your associations. This enemy turned friend of God, Naaman, is an example that Gehazi shows us in in far clearer, far clearer view because of how far Gehazi fell short. Don't take God's grace for granted. 
And finally, I think that the warning of Gehazi says something about the story of our lives. You see, Naaman started off as an outsider to God, but he finished as an obedient servant. Gehazi started off as an obedient servant, but finishes as an outsider to God. It doesn't matter where you start. What matters is where you finish with God. To those who have family or friends who have wandered from the fold of the good shepherd. To those here today who have wandered from the fold of the good shepherd. Trust in God's grace. Pray for their return. Pray for your return. Because your story isn't finished yet. And neither is theirs. Brothers and sisters, you or they may yet have a Naaman in your life. You might have a family member or a friend, someone you grew up with in Sunday school since you were a fetus, who's just walked away, and, and you feel like there's no hope for them. They're big in the world now, they're great, they are highly regarded. What chance do they have for coming back? Trust in God's grace the one whose word is powerful, restorative, and can humble the greatest of the great. Who can move the greatest of humanity to humility. And so as a final word, all of us, take heart. Take hold of this word for yourself, not ridiculing, but receiving. Not ridiculing, but revealing but this is how we respond to God's word. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are there and you are not silent. We ask that today, this evening, you would comfort, refresh, and move our hearts to respond rightly to your word. In your son's name, amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.